a locked room on a Christmas night, a vanished victim, a ransom note left in her place, family members sleeping in the house who never heard a thing, a bevy of suspects, bumbling police officers who contaminate the scene and overlook evidence, an outsider who appears to investigate the crime and set things to right. And finally, a body, hidden away. It would make a good book, maybe even a TV movie, but it's not fiction. It's a real family, and a little girl whose life was cut short before she even got out of kindergarten. It's a mystery that has captivated the country for over 20 years and may well captivate us for another 20. So on this cold February night, mix a lichen reserve cocktail, pull up a chair by the fire, and see if you can answer the question of the Christmas murder. Who killed John Benet Ramsey? John Benet Ramsey was only six years old when she was killed on Christmas night, 1996. She was the daughter of John Ramsey, a wealthy executive, and Patsy Ramsey, a socialite and former Miss West Virginia. She was born in Atlanta, Georgia in 1990. Her father, John, was the president of Access Graphics, a computer software company in Boulder, Colorado. John Benet was a kindergarten student who loved competing in child beauty pageants. She won several titles, including America's Royal Miss and Little Miss Colorado. The family, by all accounts, seemed happy and well-adjusted. On the day after Christmas in 1996, Patsy awakened and found a two-and-a-half-page handwritten ransom note on the kitchen stairs. She ran upstairs and found John Benet's empty bed. The note warned the Ramseys not to call the police or the FBI but Patsy immediately called 911. She called her pastor. She called her friends for help and support. Within three minutes, the police arrived and conducted a cursory search of the house for signs of forced entry. He didn't find any. A police officer went to the basement to look for signs of exit and saw the wine cellar was secured by a wooden inside peg latch, so he didn't even try to open it. John was making attempts to gather the money for the ransom, as more police and friends arrived to await the kidnapper's call. 
Police only sealed off John Bonet's second floor bedroom. Friends and supporters roamed the rest of the house, particularly the downstairs kitchen and living area, serving food, picking up and cleaning, and probably destroying evidence. The kidnappers never called. At one o'clock, Seven hours after the 911 call, a detective asked John and a family friend to search the house to see if anything seemed amiss. They went to the basement and opened the door to the wine cellar that the officer had not disturbed earlier. John Benet's lifeless body was on the floor. A nylon cord wrapped around her neck and wrists. Her mouth was covered with duct tape and her torso with a white blanket. John picked up her body and tore the duct tape from her mouth and loosened the cord around her neck and carried her upstairs and placed her near the Christmas tree. More evidence destroyed. Each of the Ramseys including John Benet's nine-year-old brother, eventually gave handwriting, blood, and hair samples to the police. John and Patsy, together, were interviewed for more than two hours. The autopsy revealed that John Benet was killed by strangulation and a skull fracture. There was no evidence of rape, but the pathologist could not rule out some form of sexual assault since there appeared to have been a vaginal injury. Her death was ruled a homicide. The autopsy revealed that some fruit or vegetable material resembling pineapple was in John Benet's intestine. Photographs of the scene showed that there was a bowl of pineapple on the kitchen table and later investigation confirmed that her brother's fingerprints were on the bowl. John and Patsy said they didn't remember feeding John Benet pineapple, nor did they remember putting the bowl on the table. They always maintained that their son slept through the night. The police initially focused on Patsy Ramsey as the killer with John as her accomplice. They felt the murder scene was staged to look like a kidnapping. They believed that the two-and-a-half-page ransom note was very suspicious. They were concerned that the note only demanded $118,000 from a known millionaire. Curiously, $118,000 was the amount of John's bonus the year before. Despite searching, the police were unable to find any signs of forced entry. John and Patsy responded that they were innocent. They believed that an intruder came in through a broken window or an unlocked basement window. Convinced that the police were out to blame the murder on them, they soon hired a team of attorneys, public relations experts, private investigators, and handwriting experts. The police believed that Patsy wrote the ransom note 
Handwriting experts concluded that John definitely did not write it, but other handwriting experts said they were unable to exclude Patsy, though some other experts said she didn't write it either. While the police focused on John and Patsy, the district attorney's office tended to believe that an intruder committed the crime. In 1999, over two years after the murder, a grand jury was impaneled in Boulder County and voted to indict the parents on two counts of child abuse, which led to John Benet's death. The district attorney at the time, Alex Hunter, refused to sign the indictment, saying that he did not believe that there was sufficient evidence to go before a jury. In Boulder, the public knew that a grand jury had been impaneled, but since they never heard any other word about it, they thought that the jury did not find enough evidence to indict anyone. It wasn't until 2013 that the grand jury proceedings were unsealed and the public learned the true facts that indeed the grand jury had wanted to indict the parents, but the district attorney vetoed it. In 2008, a new Boulder County District Attorney announced that she had sent a letter to the Ramseys formally exonerating them. In the letter, she apologized for the pain that the investigation had caused them. She based this decision on new DNA technology called trace or touch DNA. There had been small segments of DNA on John Benet's clothes and on her body and a small amount of blood on her underwear that did not match the DNA of any family members. While the DNA believed this exonerated the Ramseys, the Boulder police strongly disagreed with the decision. Some officers and even some investigators within the district attorney's office felt that Mary Lacey, the new DA, had developed a relationship with the Ramseys and was deliberately turning the focus of the investigation away from them. A special investigator, Lou Snit, a homicide detective, was a leading proponent of the theory that an intruder had killed John Bidet. He believed that someone had crawled through the basement window that John had broken some months earlier when he locked his keys out of the house. When Snit looked at the autopsy photos, he saw a bruise on John Benet's cheek that looked as if it might have come from a stun gun. He believed that the murderer had used this on John Benet in her bed, carried her to the basement, killed her there, and then went upstairs and left the ransom note. Snit identified several suspects in the case, some of them registered sex offenders. He discovered that within a two-mile radius of the Ramsey home, 38 registered sex offenders were living. Some of the suspects identified by Snit were cleared when their DNA did not match the touch DNA covered from John Benet's clothes or body. In a strange postscript to this case, in 2006, an elementary school teacher named John Mark Kerr was arrested in Thailand. 
he confessed that he had drugged John Bonet, sexually assaulted her, and accidentally killed her. Police quickly discounted this confession. Carr had only provided details that had already been made public. Additionally, no drugs were ever found in John Bonet's body, and Carr's DNA did not match any of the touch DNA found at the scene. Eventually, the district attorney's office returned the case to the jurisdiction of the Boulder police, who still consider this to be an active murder investigation. Lou Snit died in 2010. On his deathbed, he asked his daughters to continue the investigation and find the murderers who killed John Benet. They are continuing to work on the case with the cooperation of John Ramsey and his surviving family. Six months after the murder, John and Patsy Ramsey and their son moved back to Georgia. In 2006, Patsy died of ovarian cancer. She is buried next to her daughter, John Benet, in Marietta, Georgia. John eventually remarried, and today he is living quietly in Michigan. And to this day, he maintains that neither he nor anyone in his family had anything to do with John Benet's murder. I'm sure that we all have a lot of thoughts on this case, as many people do. So I'm looking forward to uh, hearing everyone's thoughts on here. I know that I have my own theory, so uh, we will definitely get to that. (laughs) We have a very special guest here, Godfrey Riddle. He is the founder and president of Civic Saint. Civic Saint is a purposeful lifestyle company, and they create products that inspire joy, nostalgia, and reflection. They believe and invest in inspiring communities where people reach their full potential, and they also donate a portion of each product sold to organizations that fight for racial and social equity. And I recently purchased a shirt from Civic Saint. I purchased the I Am Human limited edition t-shirt, and it is so cute and trendy. It's tie-dye. And I will be getting it this weekend. So I will definitely post a photo of me in that really cute shirt. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, Godfrey, I would love for you to introduce yourself and say anything that I left out about you and your awesome business, please. (laughs) Well, that was a wonderful introduction, Macy. And thank you so much for having me to you and Mike. Um, yes, I'm so excited for you to receive your shirt this weekend. Um, each of those limited edition teas are actually items that I personally um, dyed myself in my home. Ooh, yeah, cool. so <laughs> yeah, so you get a little bit of my creativity. <laughs> yes, I'm, so, I'm even more excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, um, and that's cool because each of them is a little bit different. I was able to get pretty consistent um, effects because of the technique I utilize, but I didn't want them to be identical. So um, I tweaked things from shirt to shirt just a bit so that they do have some variations and yours is truly one of kind. Awesome. 
Very cool. So yes, thank you so much for the introduction, Macy. So Civic Saint is a purposeful lifestyle company. And currently we're creating apparel and accessories with affirming messages inspired by the Black Lives Matter, voter rights and equal rights movements. And then we donate, as you mentioned, a portion of each sale to organizations that fight for racial and social equity, like the Equal Justice Initiative, uh, the Bell Project, Truce Market Collective, and also the Legal Defense Fund. Very neat. And remind me who uh, prints all of the shirts, because I thought that was really cool too. Oh, absolutely. So part of my mission, I am a gay man of color. So I've made it my mission to try to uplift others as I grow my business. So my first partner is She Prints It. It's a Black woman-owned firm, um, and they do printing and fulfillment. And she's also given me a bit of business advice, which has been phenomenal. Great. (laughs) Yeah, I, uh, I looked at their website, and they do awesome work. They also have design services. If anyone out there is needing a uh, t-shirt designer or apparel designer or anything. So they offer that as well. Drop my name, (laughs) y'all. Yes. (laughs) Godfrey, what what inspired you to create Civic Saint? Um, A number of things, but I, we're here to talk about John Bonet primarily, so I won't go on too long, but um, I love fashion. That's actually how Macy and I first met is through an organization called Rightfully Sewn. And I think it's a tool for empowerment um, and also can help, you know, express yourself. So I was, I've always wanted to own a business. And last summer, watching the unrest that was going on in our community, um, I felt called to do something more to harness fashion, put out a positive message, um, and also to harness the proceeds from a fashion line to fund direct change. So I thought it'd be such a cool way for people to get something beautiful and meaningful that makes a difference in their lives and others. Great. Great. Thank you. Well, everything is beautiful and, uh, go check it out at civicsaint.com Uh, and on Instagram at civic saint, correct? Yes, you nailed it. You've done your okay. research. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm still working on getting on top of my social media game, but please go like and share and comment. I always love hearing from people. And one thing that's cool, I've picked um, seven words that were personally meaningful to me. So words like persist and survivor and the shirt you got may see human. Um, and I've incorporated those into designs and it's cool to see what they've meant to others in their lives as they've gotten out into the community. Um, for example, I'm a cancer survivor. So I created the survivor pin and design to be indicative of that journey in my life, but I have a friend who purchased it and was open about the fact that it relates to her me too journey and as a survivor of sexual assault. And it just brings me so much pride and and joy to know that she thought of my pen as part of her journey and something that she sees as empowerment and a way to um, use her story to help others heal and and work through that trauma. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And I love that everything like in that way is a conversation starter from your line and 
uh, if you want it to be a conversation starter. And it welcomes a safe space to uh, discuss why a certain piece uh, you were called to a certain piece. So awesome. Awesome job, Godfrey. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Keep back hopefully i'll have a capsule collection soon oh yes well we'll have you back on so you can talk awesome. you talk about whatever you're up to next time so <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> well this week for trends of the crime i feel like we pretty recently had a 90s crime so i didn't want to we will talk about the 90s fashion a bit godfrey and i will but I also wanted to give an overview of the history of the Miss Universe pageant because John Bonet did pageants. So I thought this would be interesting. If it's not, too bad because I'm doing it anyway. Um, <laughs> so the Miss Universe pageant is an international pageant with 190 participating countries and it has an audience of 500 million people. The pageant started in 1951 when the winner of Miss USA refused to wear a swimsuit made by Catiline Swimwear. And Catiline Swimwear then created their own pageant where the contestants had to sport their designs. Only 30 women competed in the first pageant and Miss Finland won, but she had to give up her title later that year when she got married. Donald Trump also co-owned the pageant from 1996 to 2015. That could be a whole nother story that we're not going to get into. (laughs) But yes, that happened. Um, Let's get into the rules of being in the Miss Universe pageant. And I actually knew a a woman in college. She she was a fashion major like I was, and she went to Miss Universe. Miss USA while we were in college. So that was pretty cool. She was Miss, oh no, Minnesota or South Dakota, something up north. God. Yeah. This that like, was pretty cool. A pageant queen. That's so. I cool. know. <laughs> Miss USA. I mean, she didn't win, but she went to Miss. It was so cool. I was like, <gasps> I'm in the midst of a celebrity. But uh, <laughs> it was pretty awesome. It made me think of Miss Congeniality and I want like I wish that she and I were closer so I could ask her what was accurate and what wasn't. But <laughs> darn. Oh well. All right. <laughs> the rules are, at least some of the the rules I could find. You must be single and you can't have been previously married. You can't have any children and can't have ever been pregnant. As far as they know, I guess. Uh must be at least 18 years old but younger than 27 years old. The winner must travel overseas for one year giving interviews. There's also a cash prize and scholarship money. Any country can compete, but it must pay a fee. So that's why you don't see really small countries in the Miss, the Miss Universe pageant. And contestants must compete in swimsuit and evening gown competitions. The interview portion was not introduced until 1960 when the women stated that they wanted to be recognized for more than their physical beauty. So that's pretty cool. They initiated that change. And I also found a few style rules, or I don't know if they're rules. I found this on YouTube. They may be more guidelines, but I found this interesting. No closed-toed shoes. They must be open-toed heels. Weird. Um, Because I always thought that was less formal. But... I guess, I don't know. No short or high-low gowns. That makes sense. And no necklaces. Although the winner of 
Miss Teen USA or Universe did win wearing a necklace, but like no one else has ever won anything wearing a necklace recently anyway. So, so those are rules and a history lesson on the Miss Universe pageant. And next, because this is Trends of the Crime, we do need to talk a little bit about the fashion of the decade. And thanks to TikTok, well, Gen Z, but Gen Z on TikTok, the 90s are back, baby, and they are coming in hot. So if you've been on TikTok lately, you know that we're old if we wear skinny jeans and have a side part. So the jeans that are now in are like mom jeans, which I know dad will think is funny. And uh, what else? Like straight leg boot cut jeans are in, scrunchies. What else? Let me see. We have crop tops and band tees. What am I for? Oh, hoop earrings. Oh, I'm wearing my my gold hoop earrings today from the Ooh, 90s. Those and are my straight jeans. Cute. Thank you. And you have a color block top on too. Uh, yes, like, I. Yes, I am in in with the kids, <laughs> and I have well, a straight uh, a, a center part now. So. Yes, I'm good. <laughs> and on that point, I just coincidentally am wearing a sweater that has a Keith Haring artwork on it. Yes. And he was so popular in the 90s, but he's one of my favorite artists ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Is that funny? Well, Dad, do you have any 90s inspired clothes on today? Uh, I have a yellow polo shirt and jeans. And uh, cowboy boots with the Texas flag emblazoned thereupon. So I would say, I would <laughs> you say, you got no. a mix of things. I would say, yeah, no. you, well, I mean, Polo, Ralph Lauren, a little nine, 90s I kind guess. of 2000s. <laughs> sorry, yeah. I'm not keep, sorry, I'm not keeping up with you two. <laughs> not we'll a lot of people you. can. <laughs> yes, we'll forgive you. <laughs> True. You know, if we get you in some civic, civic saint attire, then you'll be styling. <laughs> yes, well, I'm, yes. I'm heading to I'm heading to your website, and I'm going to order something at some point uh, this weekend. Oh, thank you. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I I love the '90s. I'm um, of all the decades. I'm really excited for that one to come back because I lived it. So it's just fun to have garments that remind me of my youth. But it's mm-hmm. been fun, too, to see how they've re- refreshed it a little bit. Like, I love the color palettes. I love that tie-dye is a thing. I love that matching track suits are in again. Yes. Uh, it's going to be so easy to get <laughs> Amazing. <dressed>. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll still be living in that COVID fashion long after it's gone. <laughs> so true. <laughs> And I recently posted a picture to my Style All Mode KC Instagram wearing like the most 90s outfit ever. I have, they're called balloon cut jeans, white balloon cut jeans. <laughs> Godfrey's shaking his head <laughs> in disapproval. <laughs> so they're like, like tight at the waist and then they kind of come out at the thighs and then taper in at the, at the ankle. And then I had a, a lavender crop top and a belt. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so cool. 
like like the TikTokers. I mean, I'm sure you looked like so fly, but you were Thank wearing gamer parachute pants. I know, I know, I knew that's what you were thinking, but they were denim, so it's a little different. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a little better. <laughs> I can just see you doing the dance around the house with your husband. There. <laughs> Maybe I should. That might be fun. Maybe I'll finally go viral on TikTok if I do that in my balloon pants. We'll see. <laughs> well, Godfrey, do you have any insights about men's 90s fashion? Ooh, thank you for asking. Yes. So, the one thing I'm really noticing coming back hardcore are oversized silhouettes. So in the 90s, with hip-hop becoming really popular and them styling their, themselves more, they wore a lot of oversized um, shirts, jackets, usually denim, um, letterman's jackets as well, and then, of course, oversized pants. But I'm seeing coming forward the oversized top, so a lot of, like, bigger, baggier um, sweaters are in, even for women, um, bigger and baggier like jackets. And then I'm also noticing like the Disney or Looney Tunes characters coming back into play and people wearing them like semi-ironically, but <laughs> not really. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I can't pull the trigger on that one yet um, because my mom used to have like a, a denim jacket that had like Looney Tunes characters on the back. And even as a kid, I was like, mom, why? <laughs> <laughs> I can see it in my head. Are the denim dresses with the embroidered like Mickey Mouse on it? <laughs> yeah. No offense if anyone likes. I mean, it's back. <laughs> Put it on. So. True. <laughs> I recently bought a sweater from H&M with Blossom from the Powerpuff Girls on it. Oh, it's up. amazing. Yeah, it's she really cute. She has red hair and I have red hair. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I think that at least Godfrey and I can agree that the 90s are fun and I'm happy they're back. Dad, what do you think? Are you happy they're back? Well, I think, you know, I'm going to get myself a nice crop top and just walk around town in it. You know, when we celebrate your birthday on Saturday, I'm sure you would like that, wouldn't you? You know, Dad? <laughs> You would be styling, so do it. <laughs> I'll I'll cut up one of your shirts for you. There you go. <laughs> we'll do a DIY. It'll be good. <laughs> well, let's get into this whirlwind of a case. I have my own opinion. I'm sure you two have your own opinions on what the heck happened. Yeah. Because it's crazy. But first, Dad, tell us about this week's cocktail. Well, as you know, John Bonet and her family uh, lived in Colorado, so I was looking for a Colorado-themed cocktail, and I found one I had never heard of before, but it looked very interesting. Um, it's called the Lichen Reserve. Now, Macy, you and I talked about what uh, Lichen was. Do you remember? I barely remember. I believe it was the moss on the trees. Yes, kind of that green. In the forest. The green plant that kind of grows on trees or boulders. So uh, the bartender who came up with this came up with a drink and called it the lichen reserve. I'm not sure how, how the ingredients translate to that, but I thought it was pretty interesting. It's going to be about uh, two ounces of scotch, um, about a half ounce of vermouth, 
and a little bit of honey. And as you know, I am a scotch drinker. So I'm thinking a nice uh, peaty kind of woody scotch would would fit in here nicely. So perhaps I can get my uh, my other son-in-law, not your husband, but Allie's husband, to, to give me some of his Lagavulin 16-year scotch. Mix that with a little orange juice and vermouth and a touch of honey. And we'll have to see how that see how that tastes. Mm. Sounds interesting. I'm excited to try that cocktail. Uh, I think we'll probably make it and make the video on my birthday. So maybe right. you'll have to sing for me on in the video, Dad. Just there so. we go. Well, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> we'll find out. You guys <laughs> okay. will already know, won't you? All right. <laughs> I found an article called Who Killed John Benet Ramsey? Eight Possible Suspects. And I took some notes on those suspects. So I want to give everyone an overview on the suspects, even though we've gone over them a little. So to give you listeners a chance to form your own opinion, but as I'm going through, I'm sure I'm going to tell you my opinion. So here we go. First, we have Patsy Ramsey, John Bonet's mother. Some suspect that she killed John Bonet in a fit of rage over a bedwetting incident because John Bonet wet the bed a lot and this uh, frustrated her mother. It's believed that maybe Patsy was so frustrated that she slammed her daughter's head into a blunt object like a bathtub and then staged a murder and wrote the ransom note to hide what she had done. The handwriting test found that Patsy's test was inconclusive. Hmm. Her handwriting was similar to that on the note, but couldn't be proven to be the same handwriting. The ransom amount was also $118,000, which was later found out to be the exact amount of John's Christmas bonus. Why wouldn't a kidnapper ask for a much higher amount from a clearly wealthy family if, you know, they're trying to get a bunch of money? So I, I don't think Patsy did it, but I think Patsy may have had a role in covering something up for someone else. That's my opinion on her. Uh, I know that they're... Dad, talk to us more about the ransom note because I know the ransom note was pretty suspicious. Yeah, the ransom note was um, was just really not something normally seen in a kidnapping. I mean, first of all, it was two and a half pages long. Most ransom notes that that I've been exposed to they're pretty short and sweet it's uh we have your daughter if you want to see her again uh you know provide five hundred thousand dollars in unmarked bills uh don't call the police we'll contact you later this ransom note as i said went two and a half pages handwritten it identified the suspects or the kidnappers as members of a small foreign organization you know, who were trying to finance a, a revolution in their country. It was written on note paper from the Ramsey house, and it was written with a Sharpie pen at the Ramsey house. So, I mean, think about this. Supposedly, these kidnappers got in the house, went upstairs to John Bonet's bedroom, either killed her there or took her to the basement and killed her there, then went back up to the kitchen, found the notepaper, found the Sharpie, sat down, wrote a two-and-a-half-page ransom note, and asked for $118,000. Mm. 
Now, again, her dad is a, is a millionaire. Why not ask for a million dollars or $500,000? Why $118,000, which coincidentally happened to be the, the approximate amount of his, of his bonus from his company the year before. This just really doesn't make sense to me why anyone would would take the time to write a ransom note like this. Um, it was also full of movie. Did you say this full of movie references and quotes? And it was, uh, especially toward the end. It was full of of movie uh, of references from from movies that supposedly teenage boys would would be watching and drawn to thing phrases like fat cat millionaire and and things like that so it's almost as if someone was trying too hard to to write mm-hmm. a to, to write a note that that just didn't seem in character for a kidnapping that that may have went bad Mm-hmm. Who who said one of you said it takes a lot more words to lie or something? Who said that? Oh, yeah, I said that. Um, it is suspicious. I agree because two and a half pages, it takes far more words to spin a lie than it does to tell the truth. So to me, that would imply that someone to your point was trying to cover it up or make it sound authentic. And it's also curious, I know that the Ramseys did because they weren't, you know, CSI experts and they were in a time of crisis. They called on their network to come and comfort them and help them through this hard time, which spoiled the crime scene. However, if you're going to write a note, like, couldn't you dust the kitchen table or surfaces where it might have been written to see if someone's DNA is there that, that doesn't belong? Um, or even to get a pool of suspects? I I wonder about that. Mm-hmm. that that's Good a, point. That's an excellent point because they made so much of the trace DNA that was found on John Bonet's clothes and on her body. And, and trace DNA is really nothing more than, than dead skin cells. You know, I brushed up against someone today at, at work and I probably left trace DNA on, on their coat. So why not? If they hadn't, if people hadn't contaminated the whole house, they probably could have found a lot more trace DNA on the kitchen and in the living room. But they just focused on what was on John Bonet's clothes. And that obviously could have come from, you know, any of the investigators who examined the body later. Good point, Godfrey. Thank you. I have a question. So I don't think it was Patsy, but I, I do think it was an inside job. We'll get to that later. But do <laughs> you do you guys think that that maybe John, well, the whole family was disrupting the evidence on purpose? Or do you think like they were in such panic that um, they didn't know? that they were messing things up or do you think they did it on purpose to cover, to help cover up? I think the latter, I, I, yeah, not to jump. I guess we are jumping ahead. I mean, I think this happened. I think whoever killed John Bonet didn't mean to kill her, but 
when they found she was either dead or or almost dead, they just decided we've got to make this look like a kidnapping. I, I don't think it was well thought out. I mean, the ransom note tells me it wasn't well thought out. So, no, I don't think they invited the people over and cleaned the kitchen and and to do away with evidence. I think there was a, just a lot of panic going on. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. I agree because, I mean, this was the mid-90s, if memory serves. So I wonder, we all live in the CSI world where, I mean, Macy, you and I grew up with CSI being one of the most popular shows on TV. Mm-hmm. So we're all um, low-level criminologists and CSI experts. Yes. So <laughs> I don't think that they would have had that knowledge readily available, perhaps, um, the way that we did in our just cultural knowledge. So I agree with you, Mike, that they probably were just in a time of, of panic and needing to be consoled by their, their friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes more sense to me, too. Next up, we have John Ramsey. Yes, John Bonet's father. And side note, John's middle name is Bennett. So they got John Bonet from John Bennett. Cute, uh, right? So- and John Bonet's middle name is Patricia. She was named after her parents. Oh, so John, sweet John and sad. John Bennett and Patricia, of course, is Patsy. So she was named after both parents. Well, that's sad. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) um, back to something even sadder. Uh, Okay, John apparently had strange behavior, according to Officer Linda Arndt, the first officer to arrive at the scene. He found John Bonet's body in an unused part of the home. So that begs the question, how would he think to look there? Another detective overheard John making arrangements to fly the family to Atlanta just hours after the murder. John later admitted that he did do this, but he said that they just wanted to go home to Atlanta where they had lived for 25 years prior to Boulder. He didn't do it. I don't think he did it. So Same. No, none of his DNA was found. He didn't write the ransom note. Um, The question is, you know, was he trying to protect someone else in the family? Um, maybe, you know, the, the other strange thing that, that occurred around this time was the testimony of the 911 operator who, who took Patsy's call. Um, evidently Patsy, of course, was, you know, when she called, they've found a ransom note. My daughter's been kidnapped. She was nearly hysterical. I guess then she began talking about the ransom note. And the 911 operator began to question her about the note and where was it and what did it say. And all of a sudden, Patsy went from being hysterical to being very, well, she didn't want to talk about the ransom note. And she started trying to get off the phone. And the 911 operator testified or said that as Patsy was hanging up the phone, she heard someone say, all right, I've called 911, now what? It hmm. never been proven, not recorded, but that was the, the statement of the 911 operator, which, if that's true, could lean some, lend some credence to the theory. You know, we're just going to try to, we're, we're going to try to uh, cover this thing up or, or lead people astray. So 
That mm-hmm. That's never really been verified that that was said, but that was the operator's statement. It had similarities to Michael Peterson's 911 call in the staircase that we discussed last season. I don't remember if I said this in the episode, but during his 911 call, when the operator was asking, like, how many steps did she fall down? How many steps do you have? All these questions, he would say, what, what, what? And he, like, giving himself time to come up with what I think a lie or because uh, I think he did it. But Patsy did the same thing. I don't remember what questions she was asked, but she had said like, what, what? And was doing the same thing, like trying to buy some time and think of what to say, which, like I said, I don't think that she actually did it, but I think this had to be an inside job. I believe they all know, they know what happened, but we don't. <laughs> so, and, but- and the other thing we need to remember too, is the Ramses were very prominent people in in the Boulder area at that time. They had a lot of supporters. And when we look back at the investigation, it was really the police department against the district attorney's office. The police department really focused on the Ramsey family. Um, and the district attorney's office was getting a lot of calls from Ramsey's friends and business associates saying there's no way they could have done this. Why are you persecuting these people? And the district attorney was basically looking at intruders while the police department was looking at people inside the family. And and I think that's still the case today. Uh, From what I've read, if you were to go to Boulder today and talk to the police department, they'd probably still be focusing uh, on people who knew John Bonet and District attorney investigators would be saying, no, 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 that's wrong. It, it had to be an outsider. So just a, another example of power politics at play here, I think. Mm-hmm. As I've said many times on this podcast, the uh, simplest answer is usually the right answer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in life and in murder mysteries. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All good rule of thumb, yes. <laughs> Next, we have John Bonet's older brother. He had some strange behavior in a 2016 Dr. Phil interview. And by strange behavior, he was smiling a lot. Uh, he was, you know, uh, tapping his fingers a lot and just, um, just a little strange, which... None of us know, hopefully none of us know how we would react in that situation. I'm sure he was nervous. I love Dr. Phil too. I would be nervous, Um, but I'm sure he was nervous, but he did have some strange behavior talking about his sister who had died. Uh, And there was also the pineapple scenario that has been theorized. And that's a theory that suggested that John Bonet had taken a slice of fruit from her brother's late night snack found on the dining room table. There was an undigested piece of fruit that looked like pineapple found in JonBenet's stomach during the autopsy. And it's thought that maybe her taking a slice of pineapple led him to strike her with the flashlight that was found uh, nearby out of anger. And then he probably didn't think that that would kill her. After seeing what happened, maybe it was thought that it did kill her. And then they started staging 
the intruder scenario and uh, the rest happened and she died by, is it strangulation, dad? Strangulation and skull fracture both contributed. Yes. Honestly, that's the theory that I believe personally. Um, But yeah. That does sound intriguing, I think. Thank you, Mike, for bringing up the skull fracture because that and the pineapple, that all just lends itself to that to that theory. The pineapple theory is what we'll dub it. <laughs> yes, the pineapple theory. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the brother was young. He was nine at this time. And I don't think it was this was something done on purpose, but I do think that this is a very possible scenario. And as a parent, I'm not a parent, but I'm guessing that you think one child has died. You don't want to lose the other child to, you know, jail for the rest of their lives. So you'll do anything to keep the child you have left. So I'm not judging necessarily, but I, I do think that that's a plausible scenario. So. Yeah, no judgment. Just trying to understand it because I think we're all so curious to learn what happened to this young girl who who barely got to lead a life because she passed away so soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yep. Well, that that's everyone who was in the house. So now we have some intruders. Well, and one who was a housekeeper, but we'll get to her. <laughs> first, we have first we have Gary Oliva. He was a known sex offender in Boulder at the time of John Bonet's murder. When he was apprehended on drug charges in 2000, the the police found a magazine cutout of John Bonet in his backpack. Oliva's high school friend Michael Vale came forward with an allegation against Oliva, saying that Oliva had called him and said he hurt a little girl. Vale also pointed out that he pointed out that the knots used to fashion the garrote that strangled John Bonet were similar to those used in an incident where Oliva attempted to choke his mother with a telephone cord. Oliva confessed to this murder again in 2019, but the police have already looked into the claim and concluded that Oliva was not the murderer. But he's the one who confessed recently, because I had remembered that. They based their uh, conclusion that he didn't do it based on that trace DNA. I think none of it really matched him. But again, I mean, if there's other DNA that did match him around the house that was contaminated, we'd we'd never know that. So mm-hmm. it's possible. I mean, he has maintained uh, he's maintained pretty consistently that he did it. Mm-hmm. How yeah. how has he maintained? Did he did he give details or? Or how do we know? He's he's uh, he's actually made statements to the authorities that oh, he did. It. Okay. Oh gosh. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I guess you you wouldn't you wouldn't think a sane person would claim a murder that they hadn't committed or anything horrible that they hadn't done. But um, I don't know. Maybe he wanted to live in infamy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's always a possibility with false confessions is and we'll get to one who really wanted that false wanted that 15 minutes in a couple minutes but um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a couple but uh yeah, I think that that's always like 
you know, you want to be known for something. So you falsely confess to murder. And then I don't think that this was the case with any of these people, but I also think that it's very easy for suspects to be coerced into false confessions unfairly by investigators. Uh, Like I said, I don't think that happened here, but that is something that we should all remember when we look into cases uh, because people are often coerced into those false confessions. Next, we have Michael Helgoth. He was an electrician tied to an alleged property dispute involving the Ramses. But when Helgoth found out that he could be a suspect in the case due to a similar boot print to his found near the home, he ended his life. So we will never know about Mr. Helgoth. Now, investigators have said that the boot print came from the same brand of boot that he had, but the print didn't actually match his boot. Oh, okay. Oh, well, they should have told him that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. That's terrible. Yeah. Well, that's all I have to say about Michael Michael Helga. Um, But... Yeah, I I don't think he did it. I think that he's one of the least likely people on this list. And it's very sad that, um, I mean, yeah, if you think that you're going to be headed to prison for the rest of your life and could be, you know, getting the death penalty for something you didn't do, that would be a difficult pill to swallow. So, um, yeah. All right. Now we have our, our wannabe celeb here, Mr. John Mark Carr also creepy man. Uh, he was a former school teacher who falsely confessed to John Bonet's murder. He brought himself into the story by emailing a University of Colorado Boulder professor named Michael Tracy over a documentary that Tracy was creating about the case. Once Carr revealed a disturbing sexual fascination with John Bonet, Tracy turned the emails over to police. And this email exchange, by the way, lasted about four years. So this was a long email exchange. Uh, Carr was flown into Boulder from Bangkok for questioning and his DNA testing. Sorry, he was flown into Boulder from Bangkok for questioning and DNA testing and confessed to the murder. However, his DNA was not a match and he was not anywhere near Colorado during the time of the murder. And currently he is living in the Northwest Pacific. Mm-hmm. area of the u.s um in a new in a different gender so um he or she or they let me say they they are uh yes what am i trying to say we don't know where they are now or what they're doing but um that's the update on john mark Carr. he he obviously didn't do it because he was not nearby but true interesting last- piece of the puzzle Yes. Right. It is an interesting piece unless they somehow pioneered time and or space travel. <laughs> right. In 1996. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Possibility, but yeah. <laughs> True. We don't know what <laughs> secrets the government's keeping from us. <laughs> I recently asked my husband if he knew any government secrets, but he said he didn't have that security clearance. But, <laughs> Ooh, does he work? Darn. In the- and if he did tell you, he would have to kill you. Exactly. He's <laughs> he's in the Air Force, so I thought maybe I'd get lucky, but no. Oh my God, that's so cool. I had no clue. 
Yeah. Well, now he's in the Air National Guard, but he was active for six years. But yeah, wow. he doesn't know any cool secrets, unfortunately. Or that he's telling me. Like, yeah. <laughs> now I, I know, have right? Plain questions. <laughs> I know. Yes. He may not know the answers, but you can try. <laughs> Noted. We'll have a follow-up interview. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, the thing about John Mark Carr, I don't know. It's just weird that he wanted to confess to this high-profile murder and creepy. And I guess he learned about her in the newspaper. I don't know how else he would know about her. So was he a school teacher in Boulder, Dad? Do you know? I don't know. I don't Yeah. Well. All right, we're done with him. He's not worthy of our time because he's creepy and yeah, next on the list. Thank you, next. <laughs> All right, we have the housekeeper, Linda Hoffman Pugh. I feel like I'm in Clue, the game. It was the housekeeper. Um, <laughs> she heavily suspected that Patsy accidentally killed John Bonet, but Patsy told investigators that Linda was struggling financially and asked the family for a loan of several thousand dollars. The theory that Linda committed the murder suggests that she had that she led John Bonet to the basement and killed her to trick her employers into leaving the ransom money. My first thought with this is, well, she only needed a few thousand dollars, so why is she asking for the exact amount of the Christmas bonus, which is 118,000, when she knows fully well that they have more money than that? I don't think she did it. Yeah, and it would be, it would like require her to like leave her home, drive to wherever the Ramseys are, sneak in. And I guess the fact that John Bonet didn't scream or wasn't startled would hint that perhaps she knew her attacker. Because typically, mm-hmm. like, even when my brother, I live with my brother, even when he comes around the corner sometimes, I know him, but I'm like, oh, didn't see you there. <laughs> <laughs> so I would imagine that if someone woke you up in the middle of the night, as a child especially, and it's some stranger, you would scream. Um, right. Yeah. So another clue that it had to be someone that was known. Mm-hmm. That's something I hadn't thought about. Yeah. She, because... They, the family supposedly was sleeping and they couldn't find her. So you would think that she would scream if some stranger grabbed her out for bed. So, right. yeah. Now hmm. we could, we could talk about uh, another, a former FBI agent's theory who was hired by the Ramseys. Do tell. Well, his theory is that this was someone who had a grudge against the Ramseys, maybe a former employee. Of, of John, or even um, a parent of another beauty contestant uh, who had uh, become jealous of John Bonet and jealous of Patsy, someone who knew the family, who had access to the house and would have had knowledge of how much money John uh, John's bonus was. So, you know, maybe a, a teenage boy or or someone that would explain the references in the note to all the movies that teenage boys were into at the time. And, um, you know, not really thinking in terms of a million dollars, 118,000 sound like a whole lot to them. So they'd been in the house. They had seen bank statements about uh, the amount of, of his bonus. 
and they just decided, hey, let's let's uh, let's kidnap the daughter and and ask for money. And something went wrong in the kidnapping, and she died. And they stuffed the body and um, tried to collect the money. But since they weren't known, they were never suspects. So it it is some theory that this person or persons are still wandering around are wandering around Boulder or in the Colorado area uh, and have been under the radar for all these years. Doesn't sound Hmm. really logical to Mm -mm. me, but uh, that's another theory out there that uh, just, you know, some, some teenage boys or, or parents of beauty contestants who decided to get revenge on the Ramseys. You know, I did watch toddlers and tiaras. That world is cut. (laughs) the rote so but yeah i still don't buy it it was an inside job it's my opinion (laughs) (laughs) well we have one more suspect to yeah he's not he's not a real suspect to me but all right bill mcreynolds the town santa he was a neighbor who had dressed up as santa claus the week before the murder to entertain the children in the neighborhood he paid special attention to John Bonet and even took a vial of glitter she had given him into heart surgery with him. He told his wife that he wanted his ashes to be mixed with the glitter when he died. There's no evidence that he was involved. Just a little weird that he wanted, you know, his ashes to be with this glitter when, you know, John Bonet's not like a granddaughter or related to him. Just, just odd, but kind of sweet, odd. I don't know. Well, you can call it sweet or odd. The word creepy springs to mind to me. But. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Very creepy. Yes. Uh, yeah. So that's Bill. Well, there's no evidence he did it. And I think he's just a a weird guy. So, <laughs> yep. Something else. Oh, does anyone have anything else to say about any of those suspects before we move on? I'm I'm done. Same. I'm done with them. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Good riddance. Okay. I was curious as to why we are all obsessed with John Bonet because it's been, you know, 25 years, 24, I don't know, a lot of years. (laughs) (laughs) I was born in 95. I turned 26, so probably 25. Yeah. Oh my god, you make me feel never mind. I'm kidding. Yes. I was born in 88. I thought you were like close to my age, like at least 91. I was hoping. You know, I I feel like I'm that age, so it's okay. (laughs) I still grew up with CSI, Godfrey. It's okay. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Um, yeah, so this has been around for my whole life. Um, and so I was curious why we're all Obsessed. So I found an article called Why Are We So Obsessed with John Bonet Ramsey? Hmm. First on the list is People Love Beauty. And John Bonet was a beautiful girl who did pageants. She's beautiful, blonde, little child. And a study in 2004 found that even babies are likely to spend greater portions of time fixated on attractive faces than unattractive ones. This is a tendency that develops when they're between just one and seven days old. Studies have found that encountering beauty activates the opioid center of the brain linked to drug response and happiness, and that people pay far more attention to attractive people in conventional settings. So she's pretty. That's why we like her, apparently. (laughs) 
<laughs> according to the studies. <laughs> Next, humans have a tendency to judge. Mm-hmm. I know I do. And, you know, honestly, that's what we're doing right now. So here we are. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> uh, yes. A recent study from Oxford found that the urge to form judgments about people who seem different than us may be hardwired into our brains. People might be judging the Ramsey's decision to enter a young John Bonet into beauty pageants, the family's strange behavior after the death, etc. Mm. So, yeah. Then, you know, that's what we're doing. We're speculating why this happened, who did it. So it is, you know, not fun, but interesting to us to investigate on our own. So that makes sense to me. Yeah. And I think because she was such a, again, like a beautiful young child who had such promise ahead of her, it's like, we're, we're like, we have to know because it's like, we can't let that person or persons get away with robbing this young person of their life and joy. So, Mm. mm, yeah. Yep. Exactly. Third, we have schadenfreude which is a german word that means delight in the suffering of others a study in 2011 found that people with low self-esteem were more likely to feel this but that overall the feeling seems to stem from a desire to feel less envious of others or better about ourselves the ramses were wealthy and privileged so it makes sense that they would cause a sense of schadenfreude in people you know that's I don't know. It's a sad theory and uh, characteristic, I guess, to delight in the suffering of others. But um, I can definitely see that, like being interested because it's a rich family and you don't expect these things to happen to rich white families and rich communities. You know, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, leave it to the Germans to create a word for everything. Everything. I took German one through four in college. Yeah, there's a word for everything. And it's hard to remember. (laughs) Um, Next, uh, we are shocked by the possible violation of the parent-child bond. While the family has been officially cleared of any wrongdoing in the case, they are still seen as suspicious to many. The fact that John Bonet's parents were once considered suspects in the case violates that parent-child bond. No, but that could work the other way. One of the uh, one of the police officers at the scene commented when John brought John Bonet's body up and laid it in front of the Christmas tree, just said no parent could ever do that to their child. And uh, so that may have worked. It it works both ways. some people would think, well, how could you do that to your child? And other people would say, well, no one could ever do that to their own child. And of course, we know that's not true. Whether whether a parent was involved or not, we need only look at look at the headlines every week. And it seems like there's some horrible uh, child abuse situation taking place. Sad. Well, and like I alluded to earlier, if, if it's theory that I'm thinking it is. Then you're in a situation where, well, you think one is gone, so you're just trying to save the other child and the family that you have left. So in that situation, it becomes like you turn into mama and papa bear and you're doing anything to protect the other child because you think the the first one's gone. So that's my opinion. I mean, I, I feel humans 
can be capable of a lot of things if put in certain situations. And oh yeah, those of us who have not been in those situations don't know. But. That's so true. Yeah, never underestimate what a person is capable of. Um, mm-hmm. oof. Scary stuff. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I will never take Macy's drink. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Watch out. <laughs> Good thing we're on Zoom. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, lastly, I have We Are Drawn to Crime, which clearly, because here we are again, you know, just falling victim to this article. Uh, We get an adrenaline rush from observing people in serious situations. In an article for The Atlantic on the phenomenon of obsession with celebrity death, professor of psychiatry Gail Saltz poised a theory about the human psyche. She believes that we may all be a little inclined to hurt others and ourselves. We're fascinated by disasters and risk, not only because of the adrenaline rush, but because of our internal impulses to be a little sadomasochistic. However, most of us never put these urges to do something terrible into practice. Hmm. Spooky. There's also a a theory about pilots. Like, if they look down, they they want to go, like, like they're not supposed to look down or something like that. If you, if anyone knows what I'm talking about, put it in the Facebook group because I can't think of the name, but yeah. yeah. No, I, I don't know that exact theory, but I took a motorcycle ridership class two summers ago and our instructor like drilled it into her head that you go where you look. So I mm-hmm. totally could see that with pilots because she was like, mm-hmm. do not look at a curb if you don't want to hit a curb. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh. I'm, I'm that way driving a car. So I definitely get that. Not the best driver over here. Yeah. You don't want to see my rims. They are scratched to nubbins. Oh, yeah. No judgment here. <laughs> well, that, that's why we are obsessed with John Bonet. So according to the experts, um, and I agree with most of all of that. I mean, I think that I do think there's an issue in this country and probably the world that like all of the attention that we give to, you know, beautiful white women who die or white girls and then women of color don't get the same attention or sex workers don't get the same attention. Um, I do think there's a problem. Um, but you know, I, I think that that is definitely a reason like systemically why we are just obsessed with this case. I agree. I agree. She was a, cute little blonde headed girl. And, um, you know, if it had not been that, I don't know if we'd be talking about her tonight. I would like to finish this, uh, this episode by going over a silly conspiracy theory. Well, I think it's silly. Some may not. I apologize. Um, is John Bonet a young Katy Perry? You heard that right. Pop sensation, Katy Perry. Could she be grown-up John Bonet? This is a conspiracy theory due to the fact that the two have similar features. Someone said they have the same eyebrows, and apparently no one can have the same eyebrows as somebody else, according to this person. Not science, just to this person. So 
This can't be true though, because Katy Perry is six years older than John Bonet. And um, there's also no solid evidence that this is true. And something else that tipped people in this direction was that Katy Perry mentioned John Bonet in an interview saying, like, she was asked if her mom was a stage mom. And she said, I'm no John Bonet. My mom didn't do all this. And she's no Patsy. And they're like, why would she just randomly talk about that? Well, she would have been 12 years old when this happened. So it was very much, it was probably her first major crime that she saw in the news. Um, so that, uh, is not valid to me either. What do you guys think about this? Well, I mean, I would tend to believe it. I think, and she probably lives on the same Greek Island where Marilyn Monroe and John Kennedy are living right now. She's probably, uh, they've probably adopted her. Absolutely. And this whole eyebrow theory, I mean, that's ridiculous, Macy. I mean, you have the same eyebrows as Lieutenant Worf, the Klingon (gasps) Trek. So rude. (laughs) Never insult a woman's eyebrows. (laughs) Burn. (laughs) Dad wins the the burns of the night. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I bow down. (laughs) Godfrey, what do you think? Is John Bonet Katy Perry? Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) Again, it would require time travel. and Again, yes. Yeah. While I'm, like, super respectful of Katy Perry and all that she's done, like, I remember where I was when I heard some of her songs for the first time. So many good memories. No. Well, on that note, everyone knows my theory. I I believe the pineapple theory. How about let's let's finish off with everyone's theories of what happened to John Benet Ramsey. I'm going pineapple. I think it was a, I think it was an inside uh, job. I'm not prepared to say which one of them I think did it, but I think, I think it was an inside job. I would second that, that it was an inside job there. The skull fracture, the pineapple in the belly, um, and there was one other thing that led me to agree with Macy's theory, the pineapple theory. Um, but I do feel like it was an inside job because the other thing that's curious to me is if it were someone external, they're going to, well, let's think about the steps. They're going to break into the house, go upstairs directly to John Benet Ramsey's room get John Bonet without her making a sound, try to take her out of the house, presumably if they're actually kidnapping her, then something goes wrong and she ends up dead at that point. Or they like somehow like muffle her and tie her up in the unused part of the basement, go back upstairs to find paper and a marker. Mind you, this is presumably all in pitch darkness or with flashlights and then write a two and a half page note and then go back downstairs and either sneak out um, with John Bonet already deceased because of something happening or they try to take her out at that point and something goes wrong and then they're going to leave the body there mm-hmm. if, how are they going to get the money if they are leaving the body behind or yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, if they leave the body there, they won't get any money. 
at least in the uh, Lindbergh kidnapping, you know, something went wrong, the baby died, but they still took the baby, the baby somewhere so they'd get their money. So that's, that's another really good point. So. Uh, hmm. Looks like I may have to change my title to true. Yes. <laughs> Lead investigator at Civic Saint plus yes. cocktails of crime and fashion. There we go. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you, Godfrey. Uh, I, I did post a meme to our Facebook group asking what everyone, who, what murder everyone would like to see solved. And it had like a list of six. And most people said John Bene Ramsey, but I think we've solved it. So you all might want to change your answers. So I think it's been solved. Um, <laughs> But thank you for being here tonight. And uh, we will definitely have you back. And this was so fun. It was so fun to have another fashion uh, lover on the show. So I think that was a slam on me, Godfrey. But yes, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. You're not the only one who can dish them, Dad. So, right. I'm not sure what we're doing next week, but we will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.